once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. When life is a mess, even a colossal mess of your own making, there is always hope. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this sermon entitled Grace in the Wilderness, which covers Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 2 to 6. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Caleb's going to preach for us. Before he does, we have a special treat of Jim and Maria Workentine, uh, who are workers in uh, Central Asia and have been for quite some time. They've been members of Perimeter for quite some time, but have not lived here for many years as uh, the Lord uses them there. And uh, they're going to read our scripture that Caleb will be preaching from. And they're going to be reading in English and in Uzbek. And uh, we do this from time to time because it's always good. It's a sweet little reminder uh, to remember that God is the God of this world and he's working all over the world. And so, Jim and Maria, thank you. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Jeremiah 31, verses 2 to 6. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Sayohat Inoyat Topta Igamiz Kandai Israelga Zahur Bolub Shundai Digan Ed Sena Menga Save Gibalan Saved them Senga Sodek Bolub Keldum E Buhirakas Israel Men Sena Kaitadan Bunyat Itaman Sen Kaitabino Bolasan Sen Yana Childermang Chalagan Quanch Ili Roxka Tushasan Samaria Kiragan Yana Uzumlarna Bardo Kilasan Tok Iken Dikonlar Uzlara Yetishtirgan Hasseldan Yidalar Shundai Kunlar Keladiki Sochchalar Ephraim Kirlarida Shundai Dip Jar Solad Kellinglar Igamiz Hudoning Aldega Borelik Kellinglar Hudo Chikelik The Reading of God's Word. Amen. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, 
that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we we come to you and we ask expectantly, Lord, would you meet us as we approach this text? Would you take our hearts where they are wandering, where they are straying, where they are chasing anything other than you? And Lord, would you show us Jesus? Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the gift they have been to me and to my family. And uh, this is weird. And I pray, would you show us Jesus in his beauty and his glory and his majesty, even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm somewhat embarrassed uh, to admit what I'm about to admit, given what we just heard about John Morris's new book. <laughs> but uh, a few days ago, I was scrolling through videos on Instagram. You know how it is. You sit there with your thumb, and you're just kind of mindlessly going from video to video to video. And I stumbled on this one video that just made me profoundly uncomfortable. Uh, like many of you, uh, I'm not a big fan of dark and enclosed spaces. Uh, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me when people will willingly go into dark and enclosed spaces and somehow think it's fun. Well, this video was of a group of guys who thought, you know what would be a fun thing to do as friends? Let's explore a cave. And not just any cave. Not, not a big spacious cave where you're walking in and there's the big stalactites and the cavernous ceilings. No, they wanted to explore a cave that was so narrow that you had to lay on your belly and swim through it because, oh, that's the other part. It's also underwater. But because it's so narrow, you can't wear scuba gear. And so to explore this cave, you are swimming under the water and trying to go from air pocket to air pocket so that you can make your way through its entirety. And these air pockets are not places where you can kind of stand up and get your breath. They're like four inches from the cavern ceiling where you're sitting there like this and sucking in whatever you can get. And these guys, they are moving through this cavern, and each time they get to a pocket, they are trying to shout back to the others because they need to time one person's jump from one air pocket to the next. And that alone would have deeply unsettled me. I mean, you just describe that, my stomach is going to turn. But here's what really messed me up. Everything goes wrong. One of the guys is sitting in this air pocket, his nose barely above the water. He is sucking in his breath, and he's trying to yell back to his friends to wait one more moment. And then just as he is getting prepared to go under, suddenly someone comes crashing in from the outside. And this man who did not yet have his breath, suddenly he is under the water, and you are under the water with him. You can see nothing. All you can do is hear. You hear the water swirling, you hear his limbs thrashing, and you know in that moment he does not know which way is up and he does not know which way is down. He doesn't know where he is, he doesn't know where the next air pocket is, he is gagging on the water because he does not yet have a breath and he feels like he is drowning and as you're watching it you are afraid that maybe that's what you're about to witness. And then suddenly... And what feels like the very last second, his nose breaks the water again, and you hear him taking these deep, ragged breaths. He's spitting water and sucking air in, and as soon as he can get himself under control, he just starts to yell, oh my gosh, get me out. I want out, I want out, I want out. 
And I finished that video, and I left with two very distinct impressions. One, there was something else I could add to the list of things that I will never, ever, ever do. <laughs> but two, it struck me how often life in this world feels like life in that cave. Because we live in this place where so often it feels like we're trapped. We live in a world that is constantly changing and where nothing feels safe and all around us there are these things pressing down on us. There's sin and suffering and sorrow and death and it feels as though we cannot escape from them and sometimes in the midst of this world it feels like we're drowning. And we get these moments, these little moments where we get our head above the water and we think for a moment that maybe we've got it under control and everything is going to be fine. And then every time something comes crashing in from the outside and reminds us that whatever control we felt we had, it was an illusion. And just like that man, we want out. The trouble's this, we don't know how. Where do you go for life in a world that seems to be filled with only death? Where do you go for peace in a world that seems to be filled with only conflict? Where do you go for hope in a world that so often feels hopeless? Those questions or why this particular text is so precious to me. You know, I, the, every pastor I'm sure has this, but this is one of those texts that I've had circled for years. I've, I've wanted to preach it because it has been the subject of my prayers. It's been something I've meditated on, thought about, prayed through over and over and over again, and that probably means I'm not gonna do it justice. But I love this text because right here in this moment, in this world that is seemingly so absent of hope, God says, I can show you where hope is actually found. He is speaking to this people, his people, who are living in this moment in what feels like a hopeless wilderness. They are in a place from which it feels like there is no exit, and it feels like God, he is either absent or very far away. And in the scriptures, if you've read them, you know that this theme of the wilderness, it's, it's everywhere in the scriptures. The, the wilderness is the place that God led Israel after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It's where he showed them who he was and he gave them his presence and he fed them with manna from heaven. It's where he protected them from their enemies and sheltered them from the storm. It's where he prepared them to be his set-apart people before he brought them into the land. It's the place where David fled when Saul was trying to kill him. It's the place where Elijah fled when Ahab and Jezebel were trying to kill him. And it is the place in the Gospels where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus so that he can be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And every time you see the image, the picture that you are given, it is of a place that is barren and devoid of life. It is of the kind of place where if you were to go there in your own strength and in your own power, you would not live, you would die. It is populated not by people, but by wild animals, and marked not by order, but by chaos. It is a place that seems to be barren of hope. And God's people, 
If ever there was a moment where someone is in the wilderness, God's people, they're in it now. The the people that God is speaking to here in Jeremiah 31, these are a traumatized people. That they have experienced a trauma not unlike Nagasaki or Hiroshima after the atomic bomb. Literally, everything that they trusted in, everything that they knew, everything that was precious to them has just been stripped away. And now they are left living in the aftermath, wondering what life is going to look like on the other side. Babylon has come into Judah and they have destroyed everything. God's city, Jerusalem, has been reduced to ashes. God's temple, the place where God dwelt with his people, God's temple has been reduced to rubble. God's king the man who's supposed to represent God's rule in the midst of the world, he's been led away in chains and he's been forced to watch as the Babylonians literally murder all of his sons in front of him. And then they put out his eyes so that that's the last thing he ever sees. What happens to the king is a picture of what happens to all of Israel. These are the people who, as the text says, survived the sword. These are mothers who watched their infants killed by Babylonian soldiers. These are grandparents who have just watched as their entire family line has been wiped away. And now they are living in a foreign land under the thumb of a foreign ruler who cares for them not one bit. If ever there was someone in a wilderness, they are in one now. And here's what makes that wilderness feel so absolutely hopeless. This wilderness, it's a wilderness of their own making. Israel's not here because they just happen to take a wrong turn and end up in the wrong place. Israel is sitting in the position that they are sitting in because of choices that they have made. The entire book of Jeremiah, it is screaming that what has happened to them, it's all their fault. God chose Israel, this little ragtag group of shepherds, to be the means through which he was going to bring his salvation to this world that has been so broken by sin. He made them into a great nation. He married them to himself. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people and I'm going to give you a land, a land flowing with milk and honey and I am going to dwell in your midst. Literally, he is bringing them back into paradise. It is Eden part two. And God shows himself faithful to every promise that he has made and yet what does Israel do? Israel at every turn rejects the Lord who has married them to himself. In the language of Jeremiah, they have forsaken the fountain of living waters and built instead broken cisterns that can hold no water. And now they're blaming God because they're thirsty. Their prophets have told lies, their priests have desecrated the temple, their kings have bowed down to lords other than the Lord their God and the people of God. They haven't just bowed to idols, they have quite literally sacrificed their children to those idols. 
Like an unfaithful wife to her husband, Israel has cheated on the Lord again and again and again and again. And God, in his kindness and in his patience, he has sent prophet after prophet, generation after generation, begging them, pleading them to come home, to repent, to leave behind their sin, to give him their hearts. And Israel over and over has said no. And now the one who would have been their husband, he is their enemy. And they are sitting in a wilderness, the wilderness of their own making, and it is all their fault. As Jeremiah 30 says, their wound is incurable and their hurt, it is grievous. Why? Because their guilt is great. You know, you want to talk about a bleak picture? This is it. And yet it is one with which all of us are far too familiar, isn't it? And what God is giving us in Israel is this microcosm of what is happening in humanity writ large. Because who are we? We are the people that God made in his image that he created and designed for life with him in paradise. And yet what has every man, woman, and child done since Genesis 3? We, would, we have said we would rather have wilderness, the wilderness without God than paradise with him. And all of us, all of us have suffered as a result. You know, there are times... There are times when we suffer just because we live in a broken world. In Job, in Job's suffering, he's not suffering because of things that he has done. But that's not always the case, is it? You know, I, I can speak for myself here. I mean, I, I can't count the number of times I found myself in situations that I absolutely did not want to be in. But if I was really brutally honest in those moments, if I was to really search my own heart and look back at what had led me to those places, almost every time it's because of decisions that I have made. I mean, this is true of all of us, isn't it? There, there is, in every one of us since the fall, this universal propensity, as Francis Spufford says, to break things. We break promises and relationships. We destroy ourselves and we destroy others. We are these walking contradictions. We, we say that we want life and peace and happiness, that we want a world where people love and are loved, where people are forgiven and grace is shown. But then, with our lives, we create the opposite. We want forgiveness, but we take vengeance. We want unconditional love, but we give conditional acceptance. We want peace, but we make war. And if all of us are honest, if we were to take a moment and to strip away our defenses and look at who we are at the core of our being, we would have to confess this. Whatever the mess is that we live in, whatever wilderness we are inhabiting, it is one of our own making. We are part of the reason that our marriage is crumbling. We are part of the reason that we're estranged from our children. 
We're a part of the reason that our lives have not turned out the way that we desired them to turn out. And what is true of us as individuals, it is true of us collectively too. We are the reason this world feels as though it is being torn apart. Because generation after generation, year after year, moment after moment, we have said that we would rather have life in the wilderness without the one who made us than life in paradise with him. And our wound, it is grievous, and our hurt, it is incurable, and it is because our guilt is great. And every one of us finds us in the exact same position that Israel does. God, he would be to us a father, but we have him instead as our enemy because we have given our hearts not to him, but to something else. I mean, you want to talk about a bleak topic, this is it. But here's why I love this text. How does God respond to Israel's position? He comes to people who have not done everything right, but who have actually done everything wrong. People that if God had just thrown up his hands and said, you know what, you've gone too far, live with the consequences of your actions. We wouldn't have blamed him one bit, would we? But what does God do instead? God comes to the ones who deserve only judgment. And God promises grace. A startling grace unlike anything we have ever seen. In verse 2, he says, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, prodigal, adulterous Israel, the Lord appeared to him from far away. God says in the same way that I led Israel out of slavery into the wilderness and I provided for them in that barren place in the same way that I loved them, cared for them, and gave good grace to them, even though they were not grateful towards me. I am now going to show you that kindness again. I am going to come to you in the midst of your despair. And that rest that you so desire but so little deserve, I am going to provide for you in full rest from your suffering, rest from your sorrow, rest from your sin. And there is only one reason God gives for why. It's so simple that we just, I think sometimes we skim right over this and yet it is profound in its implications. Why does God give grace to those who don't deserve it? Why does God appear to his people when they are seeking for rest even though they have done everything to lose it? One reason, verse three, because he loved them. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued. I have continued my faithfulness to you. God, God in this text is laying his heart bare. He's saying, Israel, you've done everything to lose your hope. But my heart is such that I cannot let you go. One of my favorite authors, 
is a woman named Marilyn Robinson. And she's written this series of books that it's, it's literally the same story with the same characters, but told from different perspectives. So one book is from the perspective of one character and another is from the perspective of another. And one of the characters in that book is this man named Jack Bowton. And Jack is, he's the epitome of the prodigal son. He, he's a man who was raised by a minister father, not a minister father like you see in so many books and in so many movies. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a farce. He's not saying one thing and doing another. He's a man who loves Jesus and loves his son and has done everything he can to raise him up well, to love him, to care for him, to provide for him. But Jack Bowton, Jack Bowton is spit on everything his father has given him. He has made a wreck of his life and a wreck of other people's. He has abandoned the women that loved him and he has abandoned the children that he has fathered. And he has lived his life as a vagrant and as a convict. And he inhabits a wilderness of his own making, far from his father, far from his home, far from those that he loves. And he lives in this cloud of shame and guilt from which he thinks there is no escape. But every time he would think to despair, every time he would think to give up hope, Marilyn Robinson writes this. He had this one thing that he would cling to. That his father would embrace him weeping if given the chance. This thought was the thread his life had hung by. Jack Bowton is far from home but his father's heart is not far from him. Jeremiah 31 says what Jack Bowton had in a shadowy way in his earthly father, we have in a perfect way in a heavenly one. Despite everything that we have done, despite all that we have done wrong, God declares to Israel and to us in the gospel, I would embrace you weeping if given the chance. I have loved you with a love that is greater than all of your fears and all of your sins. Jeremiah 30, or excuse me, the book of Jeremiah, over and over, God has been warning Israel of what's going to happen if they continue in their sin. He's told them that they're going to face everlasting disgrace, everlasting shame, and everlasting ruin. And Israel has ignored every warning, and so all of those things are there, and yet how does God meet them here? He meets them with everlasting love. A love that is faithful even when God's people have not been. And the question that Israel has to be asking in this moment the question that we should be asking is where is that grace found? Where is the heart of the Father who would embrace us weeping if given the chance? Where is that love that is faithful even when we are not? Where is that one who would come to sinners and pour out grace that they do not deserve? And the answer of the gospel, the answer that Jeremiah is pointing to and we can now see in full, it is in the arms of the crucified Christ. He is the arms of the Father opened wide. He is the one who enters into the wilderness of this world, the Lord who has appeared from far away, God in human flesh. And what is it that Jesus brings when he comes into this wilderness world? Matthew 11, verse 28, it's the language of this text. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Rest from your sufferings, rest from your sorrow, rest from your sin.
rest from your striving and your labor and your desperate attempts to be God of your own life. God has sent his son into this wilderness world not to leave us here. He has sent him to bring us out. And how does Jesus do it? Not just by entering the forsaken place, but by coming the forsaken one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, Jesus bore the sword of God's judgment that we deserved. Jesus endured the blow that we deserved. Jesus experienced the everlasting shame and disgrace and ruin on the cross, even though he was the one person who absolutely did not deserve it. And why did Jesus do it? The very reason we are given in this text. Because the Father loved us. And that means for us at least two things. One, as we walk through this wilderness world where things are so often not the way they're supposed to be and we find ourselves groaning in agony and crying for someone, anyone to come and to get us out, we have one in Jesus who knows exactly what that feels like. One who, unlike us, was without sin and yet knows in his very bones, in his very soul, what it is to live in this broken place and whose heart is not against us, but whose heart is for us. One we can call to and know that he hears us and he hears us joyously and he hears us with sympathy because he knows this world. But we also have this sure hope. Yes, we have an incurable wound. And yes, we have a grievous hope or hurt. And yes, our sin is great. But there is one in Jesus who is greater than our sin, who was pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities so that we would have not God's condemnation, but as Isaiah 53 says, his what? His peace. And the one who died in our place, God didn't leave him in the tomb, did he? He raised him. So that for those who are in Christ, they might know this, no matter how dark the hole that we have dug for ourselves, no matter how bleak the wilderness no matter how hopeless our situation, we can have confidence, not in ourselves, but in the one who loved us and gave himself for us, that whatever this thing is, even if it ends in physical death, it will conclude in resurrection life. The things that our sin have broken, God is going to gloriously restore because Jesus entered the wilderness not to leave us in a hopeless future, but to give us instead a glorious future. And you see that future in verses four to six. Look at what it says. Again, though you were ravaged and destroyed because of your sin, again I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. 
For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, the city of the Lord, to the Lord our God. Hear what is happening. The unfaithful bride of Christ is now being called a virgin again. The wilderness has been made into a garden. The ruin has been made into a city. The rebellious people have been made into a worshiping people. The divided people have been now been united in Christ. The ones who once were at war with each other are at war with each other no more, and they are tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord in the midst of the land. They are in paradise again with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, experiencing all of his goodness and his glory and his beauty. Everything that is broken has been made whole. The wound that is incurable, it has been cured. And all, all because of one reason and one reason only. Not because of us, not because of anything we have done, but because of the reason we're given in verse four. God alone. Again, I will build you and you shall be built. You wanna know what your hope is? It's not in how much you love the Lord. It's in how much he loves you. Because in this changing world where nothing is stable, it is the one thing that never moves, it never shakes, it never changes. It is the rock upon which we can stake our lives and we have seen in the person of Jesus and the love that we have tasted now as those who are in him. That love that we now know in part, not by sight but by faith. It is a love that God says one day we are going to know and experience in full. 1 John 3 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That love we know now, it is a love we will experience in full. And on that day, the ruins of our lives, they will be made into cities. The wilderness of our lives will be made into a garden. And these lives that seem like there is nothing in them, they are barren and dead, they will become something glorious and fruitful, not because of us, but because of Christ alone. That's the hope we're being given here. It is a hope dictated not by our circumstances, not by our works, but instead by the one who loved us and gave himself for us in Christ, the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. A few weeks ago, I was reading this article in The Atlantic. It was one of the most powerful things I think I've read in a really long time. It was about a a family who on October 7th thought that Hamas was going to kill them. It was a small family, a father and a mother. They had a three-year-old and a one-year-old little girls. And on, the morning, on October 7th, they thought they were waking up to just another normal day. And then they heard the mortars falling. And then they heard the machine guns roaring. And then they heard Arabic voices outside their window. And they knew that in that moment that their lives were in danger. And so the father took his family 
and he locked them inside the safe room of their house, this room that was designed to protect them from mortar shells, but that he knew wouldn't protect them from someone who came to that door and started trying to knock it down. And once they were inside that room, things went from bad to much, much worse because the power went out. And they realized that they were locked in this room with no power and no food and very little water. And the only hope that they had was that the father's cell phone had just a little bit of battery left. And in his last act before that cell phone died, he texted his father, a 62-year-old retired military officer, and said, Dad, we're in trouble. And his dad wrote him back, I'm coming. And then the phone went dead. And so they sat there in the darkness, two little girls under the age of three, waiting in the dark without food and without water, terrified of the voices outside, and the dad just kept whispering to his girls, grandfather's coming, grandfather's coming, grandfather's coming. Do not be afraid, do not worry. But then 10 hours passed, and the machine guns didn't stop roaring. And the voices did not stop speaking. And the father, he began to despair. Until suddenly he heard a sound, unlike anything he'd heard before. The sound of a gun of another kind. And then he heard footsteps outside their door. And then they heard a voice. And his daughter, his oldest daughter, said this, Saba Hegea, grandfather is here. And they began to weep because they knew they were safe. We need to hear this because what God is doing in Jeremiah 31 is he is whispering to us in the midst of this world that feels so broken and where it feels like there's no hope. And what he is saying to us is not that I'm coming. It's that I've come. And you may live in the midst of this world, but you are safe now in Christ in ways you could never have dreamed possible. Death itself has been defeated, and your sin, it is gone, and it is no more. But your hope is even greater than that, because the one who has come, he is coming again. And when that day comes... We will hear a sound unlike anything we have heard in this world, the sound of a trumpet. And we will see something unlike we have ever seen before, the glorified, crucified, resurrected and ascended Christ descending in glory to claim his people for himself. He will call us by name and on that day every single thing that is broken he will make gloriously new. And we will weep but not with sorrow, we will weep with joy. Because the one who has come, he has come again. Where do we find our hope in this world that feels so hopeless? Where do we find life in this world that so often feels like death? It's not in our circumstances. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our ability to control our surroundings or ourselves or anything like that. 
It is in the arms of the Father who in Christ would embrace his prodigal people and bring them all the way home. Now we place our trust in him, the one whose love is greater than our fear, greater than our sin, and greater than this world. We pray for us. Father, we're so thankful that we have a God like you. Lord, not like the ones we've created that take and take and never give anything in return, but Lord, instead one who loves with an inexplicable, everlasting, unchanging love. And we pray, Lord, would you grip our hearts afresh? Would you open our eyes to the fullness and the sufficiency and the beauty of Jesus? so that we would take these hearts that we are so prone to give to other things, we would give them instead to you. Because we would know that is the one safe place in this dangerous world. Do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.